back to the Upon This Rock podcast. My name is Max Thomas, and uh, thanks for stopping on by. And I apologize up front for the long delay. My uh, family and I, we moved across the world, actually. Um, We now live in the Middle East, and uh, so we've been flying all over the place and settling into our new home and adjusting time and getting our visas taken care of for where we live now and uh, just trying to get our our life settled and all that kind of stuff. And we obviously live somewhere now where we don't know the language and really don't know much of anything at all. And so uh, it's been an, an interesting month to say the least. And so my time has been occupied with that. And um, so, but we're hopefully settling in a little bit here now that what I can kind of hop back on the, the train here a little bit. I don't I don't know if I'll be able to do one a week, um, at least for a little bit. I, I don't I don't think it'll take me too long, hopefully, to get back up up to that. But um, things have settled down a little bit, and so I wanted to uh, to hop right in. And I do want to continue actually the conversation uh, that we had started uh, previously, talking about how to read the Bible. I did a we did a fun crossover pod in uh, just the last episode, episode fifteen. Uh, with uh, some friends of mine on the Rabbit Trails podcast. But previous to that, we had done, I'd done, I think, episodes 13 and 14. I think it was just those two on uh, how to read the scripture. And uh, first in episode 13, we looked at reading in light of Jesus, or what I said in that episode was reading from and for Jesus. And uh, we're looking particularly at how do we read the Old Testament. And so we, we need to read the Old Testament uh, from Jesus and for Jesus, meaning that Jesus is our, our escort. The crucified and risen Jesus is our guide into the Old Testament. And so that when we go back into those stories and into those poems and into those narratives and into those songs, uh, we're not wandering aimlessly, but we have a guide with us, and it's the crucified and risen Jesus. And so he's the one who takes us back into those places, and he acts as a light shining into that room. And, and Paul actually even uses this analogy that uh, that we're like wandering in a dark room, looking through a glass, uh, a dark glass dimly, and now... Uh, the light shines into that room, and it's not that new things are there, it's that we now have eyes to see things that were always there, that we just didn't have eyes to see them. And, and this is what Jesus says uh, over and over, that the scriptures speak of him. Um, we looked at, I think, the, the road to Emmaus story in Luke 24, that he's walking along this road with these two disciples, and he just openly begins to rebuke them and say, have you not read the law? Have you not read the prophets? Have you not read the Psalms that they all testify of me? And if, if you would have read them correctly, you would have actually come to the conclusion that I needed to go to the cross to suffer and die, that the Messiah must suffer and enter into his glory. But you just didn't have eyes to see it. You thought it was going to come one way because your eyes were blinded, right? And that's the whole kind of point of that story is their their eyes were blinded to Jesus, both physically, but I think that really stands as kind of a, a metaphor, living metaphor in that story for their eyes were blinded in the scriptures. And so in the, in the scriptures, they didn't have 
eyes to see. And then as Jesus, it says, opened the scriptures to them, and then he broke the bread uh, in front of them, that then their eyes were opened. And it says, did our hearts not burn within us as he opened the scriptures to us on the road? And so they're Yes, their physical, it wasn't their physical eyes were opened. It's that the, the eyes of their imagination as related to the scriptures, as related to what he was talking about in the law and the prophets and the Psalms, that then their eyes were opened uh, and they saw him for for who he was. And so we read from Jesus, uh, meaning that he's our our guy, that he's our starting point, that he's our our beginning beginning place and and therefore he's the the image that we work from he's the place that we work from but we also read for him and we should expect to see him all over the place again Moses wrote about me all the law and the prophets and the psalms they speak about me when they go up on the mount of transfiguration and they see Jesus and he's talking to Moses and Elijah about his soon coming death right the the law and the prophets are testifying of Jesus and his soon coming death. That is ultimately what they speak about. They speak about Jesus and his crucifixion and resurrection. And so then in, in that was episode 13. Episode 14, uh, we took kind of that basic reading strategy and we looked at, um, or, or hermeneutic, it would be the, the fancy word, and we applied it to um, some of the violent portraits of God in the Old Testament, uh, because it, these are troubling for a lot of people. They're troubling for me. Um, and if they're not troubling, then either you haven't read them or you haven't read them well, or you're just pretending. Uh, but some of them really, really are, are troubling. And uh, so I wanted to look at those. And then I used two examples from Paul's letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10 uh, as a test case. Say, okay, well, how did uh, the New Testament writers and and then the early church when they were reading and engaging with stories that portrayed God as violent how did they do it and and we have two examples in 1 Corinthians 10 by Paul and went through those it pretty in depth actually in in episode 14 i think that's like a 45 or 50 minute episode um where we where we dive into that and and this would be the concluding thought that we come to at the end of that, and, and I didn't come up with this saying, I'm stealing it from a, a pastor friend of mine, Brian Zond, and he says this, that we have to always remember, and this I, I think is underlying Paul's move in 1 Corinthians 10, that God is like Jesus, and that God has always been like Jesus, and God will always be like Jesus, and we maybe haven't always known that, but now we do, and so that when we want to know what God is like, we first look at Jesus. We look at the one who was crucified, died, and was buried. And on the third day, he rose again, that Jesus is the image of God. And we used, I used this analogy in that episode of uh, a puzzle box. And this actually is from um, uh, a, a second century uh, church father, uh, Irenaeus, and he, he used uh, mosaic, but puzzle box would be kind of our our version of it when you're setting a, a trying to put together a puzzle what the first thing that you do is you you set up the the box and so that you can look at the picture on the box so that you know when I put these pieces together what is it supposed to look like and this is 
this is what the New Testament means, is one of the things that it means anyway, when it calls Jesus the image of God, the image of the invisible God, Paul calls him. He's literally the icon, would be, be the a literal translation, of God. That He's the picture on the front of the box. That However you want to try and put some of these puzzle pieces together, and admittedly some of them are hard. Some of them have weird edges and jagged edges and shapes that make us uncomfortable, and, and we don't always know exactly what to do with. And so... My point in even having this conversation is not to say, well, here, here's the 40-minute episode that now you can go and read every story perfectly. Not at all. Um, it's still very, very difficult and still lots of questions and challenges. And, and we're not always going to even be able to come to a perfectly satisfactory answer all the time. I, I just I don't think you're going to. There's always going to be some level of tension and struggle and wrestle. And I think, by the way, that's good. I don't, I don't actually think that's a bad thing, but that's a whole other conversation. Um, but when we're in that wrestle, what we have to remember, however we decide to try and put those pieces of the puzzle together, that in the end, the image must look like Jesus. In the end, the, the image of God that we have to come to has to look like the crucified and risen Jesus. That if our image of God comes out to be anything but that, that we should question it. And we should not question God, not question who he is. We should first question our reading of the text and say, okay, is there a different way to read this? Not in that I can just make up, but that the church has always engaged in that real scholars and theologians and teachers and pastors and believers and fathers and mothers of the faith, that they have engaged. Is there another way that something that I'm not seeing, again, light shining in the room, is there a beam of light that maybe I need to to strike my eyes so that I can see something that maybe I haven't seen before and read these stories in a more in a more faithful way? And so that's kind of where we've been. What I want to do today is, is kind of take a a little bit of a step back and look at um, how does the New Testament kind of more generally engage with uh, the Old Testament scriptures, what what they just call the scriptures, what we now call the Old Testament, and look at some of the the different ways in which uh, the Old Testament or the New Testament authors are doing that, because ultimately where I've wanted to go in this whole series is um, how do we actually read uh, the Old Testament? So that's what I want to get into in the next episode or two, maybe. Um, but that's really actually kind of where I have wanted to go in, since the very beginning. And uh, and so, but I wanted to deal with some of these uh, first kind of um, steps first. And, and I think this is an important one because before we start to read some of the Old Testament, I think we can learn from how does the the New Testament authors read it. And we looked at uh, some specific cases. We just kind of dove right into some some of the specifics with the violent portraits of God, just because those are troubling. And, and honestly, whenever I talk about this subject, that's where the conversation goes really quick. That's the first place that everyone wants to go. And so I figured we'll just go there right away. Um, and so, but now I want to take a little bit of a step back and look at how does the New Testament uh, authors, how do they engage with the Old Testament? How are they trying to basically answer the question? How are they reading the Scriptures, their Bible, what what we would call the Old Testament? And maybe then we can 
learn from it, and then we'll take some of those actually into uh, the Old Testament and, and some other things and, and look at um, some ways that we can, that we can read. So um, what you'll see, I think I can confidently say in every book of the New Testament are, I can confidently say that, in, in every book of the New Testament are some kind of what, um, what Tim Mackey uh, from the Bible Project, who, by the way, is quickly rising in my favorite theologian category. Um, I always have kind of like a mental Mount Rushmore of theologians and also a mental kind of Mount Rushmore of preachers. And he's, um, he's rapidly climbing, and I think maybe on the Mount Rushmore of theologians, at least modern theologians. I also then have a Mount Rushmore of, of uh, old dead theologians, church fathers, but I have a lot of Mount Rushmores, okay? It just is what it is. I have a weird thing about categorizing and ranking them. But anyway, Tim Mackey, Bible Project, super great. But anyway, he calls these, that was a weird aside, but he calls these hyperlinks. And every New Testament book um, have these hyperlinks to the Old Testament. So think of it like a, a Wikipedia page. That every article um, on Wikipedia is filled with these words that are colored, uh, that are meant to stand out. They're colored because they are meant to stand out, and they link you to another piece of information that is related to what you're reading now. Right? We all we all know what a hyperlink is, and the New Testament authors do this all the time. They're constantly, and I mean constantly more than we, I think, even really could fathom. They're constantly hyperlinking, if I can turn that into a verb, back to the Old Testament. And if we, and this is why this is important, if we want to understand all that they are saying, we will be able to get some of what they're saying. But if we want to get all of what they're saying, and I think if we want to get some of the interesting and um, deep and um, kind of worth pondering and meditating things, if we want to get all the things that they're saying, we have to learn to recognize and follow those hyperlinks. And I just, I, I mean, honestly, so much of Bible study, so much of Bible reading is literally just this. Have you trained your eyes to recognize and follow the hyperlinks? Now, these are really kind of two separate questions that we'll get into. One is you have to recognize them. You have to have the eyes to see that the author is putting in a detail in this story or Paul is, is putting in a word or an image here on purpose. And then if I don't recognize that and understand what he's, if I don't have the eyes to see that this is a hyperlink, this is a different colored text on a Wikipedia page that's trying to take me to a different source of information that's related to this. If I don't have eyes to see that, then I'm just going to miss a whole level of nuance and depth and color of what the author is trying to say. So one, one issue here is I just need the reading skills to be able to see them, to be able to recognize them, to be, to be able to, to, as I'm reading the page, to go, oh, there's one, there's one, there's one, there's one. Oh, I see where he's, where he's linking here. I see, oh, where he's going here. I, I just need to be able to see that. But then the other issue is 
we need to actually follow those hyperlinks. It's one thing to recognize it. It's another thing then to actually flip the pages in your Bible and go backwards and read and then slow down and ask the questions and ponder, go for a long walk, drink a cup of tea, drink a cup of coffee, sit on it for a week and be willing to actually settle and sit there. And so many of us, even though, even when we have the eyes to recognize, I think something is here, we fail, I think, often to actually go backward and, and read it and to slow down because we, we want to get through it, not because we're just trying to check something off a, a box. I think most people, it's actually they want to just continue to read and they want to actually get more. And so we just keep going. And, and what, we, what we miss out on is we miss out on plumbing the depths, the depths of, of what's there. So we need, to, we need to, to slow down. But these hyperlinks, they aren't, um, they aren't just, this is where the metaphor breaks down a little bit, but they aren't just references um, like a Wikipedia page is where it's just a reference to another page. Um, these hyperlinks are um, the world in which the New Testament authors live in. It's the world in which their imaginations draw from. Imagination, not that they're making these things up, but as they're, because remember, they're writing these letters and gospels decades later. I mean, John is writing in the 90s. He's writing an entire generation later. And so he's remembering back, and he's had 40, 50, 60 years, some of them. And, you know, Paul is writing in the, the, uh, largely in the 50s and 60s, he's had 30 years of since Jesus was um, crucified and, and rose again. They've had decades to ponder all of these stories. So then when they're coming back to write them, they are not just giving us history lessons that if we were to take a, our, our, you know, camera phone, our iPhone out and, and shoot the thing and, and shoot the, the video you know, this is what we would see. That's not what they're doing. They are giving us um, what Father John Baer, an Orthodox scholar, calls scripture, scripturally mediated memories. Scripturally mediated memories. That's just a fancy way of saying that the New Testament authors are using the color palette of the Old Testament scriptures to paint their portraits of Jesus and the canvas that they're using is not a new blank one. They're actually painting right on top of those same Old Testament scriptures. So they are as they're, so as John is, you know, sitting back in, in 55 years later, he's remembering everything that Jesus said and did, and he's beginning to write his gospel account. He's not just writing, this is what happened on this day, this is what happened on this day. He is crafting a a mediated, a scripturally mediated memory to say something to you through that story. So the story of the wedding of Cana is not just a, and Jesus went to a wedding and he turned water into wine and here's the iPhone footage. No, it's a theological 
argument and statement and evidence of it's trying to make a claim about something in all kinds of creative ways. And the story is told in a very specific way to try and get that, to try and get that across. And so we, we, we have to be able to recognize these and see these. And this means that we have to actually know the Old Testament. We'll get, that, get to that in, in a second. So we can think about these as hyperlinks. I think I just touched the microphone. Sorry about that. But we can think about these as hyperlinks. We can think think about this as a canvas that's being they're they're picking up the color palette of the Old Testament scriptures and they're 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 painting their portrait of Jesus right on top using that same color palette right on top of that same canvas. You could also use another um, uh, metaphor that they are. Uh, 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 musicians and they're using their instruments, their unique instruments, um, to play their part of the song, the song that's already started, the key's already set, the arrangement's already been set forth by the Old Testament authors, by the, the law and the prophets and the Psalms. And they're just continuing on that same, that same song. And they're using that same key and that same arrangement. But the point is, is that the New Testament authors were so saturated in the scriptures that when they're telling these stories or when Paul is is writing his theology, they are layering image upon image and doing so with even the, the smallest, what seem like the smallest details or notations. And they expect their readers to pick those things up. This is what New Testament um, scholar Richard Hayes, he calls his version of the hyperlink or layers kind of metaphors. He calls these echoes or allusions. What he's trying to pull out is that for, for the New Testament authors, the Old Testament scriptures were still reverberating in their ears and that when they tell the story to us, they want us to hear those same reverberations. They want us to hear that same voice of Elijah speaking back from time and speaking to us so that we're continuing to hear the same thing and that all of these voices, that Jesus' voice and their voice and Moses' voice and Elijah's voice um, and Aaron's voice, that they're all speaking the same thing, that we can hear all of them uh, in one flow. So he calls these echoes. They're, they're not uh, they're they're not always or usually direct quotations. They're they're fainter. They're more subtle. They're more nuanced. They're more uh, more layered than that. But it's, it's another way of saying the same thing. So the the first point that I think needs to be made is that if we want to read the Old Testament, really the whole Bible faithfully, it means that we actually have to read all of it. We can't just read the Gospels and Paul and Psalms and a proverb a day for 31 days a month. That, just, that can't be it. We have to read the whole scriptural witness. We have to figure out what the heck Ezekiel and Nahum are saying. We have to read First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Samuel. We have to we have to try and figure out what the heck is going on in the book of Ruth and why this story of this seemingly insignificant woman matters. Because 
when the New Testament authors are trying to tell us the story of Jesus. They are not making up a new story. They are living in the world of those stories. And we won't understand what they're saying about the Jesus story, about the church story, about your story and my story and the world story unless we understand the story of Israel, unless we understand and know the scriptures of Israel. And the New Testament authors, again, they just assume that the readers are going to know those Old Testament stories in a way that they are they're able to pick up even the most um, minute and, and the slightest illusion. These echoes, these hyperlinks, whatever metaphor you want to use, they come in all kinds of ways. And I thought it would be fun as we kind of finish up this episode here. I'm already uh, over my time, but, you know, we're having fun. And I haven't done one of these in a month, so I have a lot to say. Uh, I thought it would be fun to kind of go through one of these. And uh, there's a bunch of different ways that we could go. Now, in, in a, uh, I think maybe in the next episode, I actually want to just do a whole episode of, of examples, um, different kinds of examples, different kinds of hyperlinks and things like that. Um, it, that's used not only in the, the New Testament, but how the Old Testament does this uh, in itself as well. But I, I do want to start with one in, in the New Testament. And I want to look at John chapter 1. John chapter 1 obviously is a, uh, one of the more famous uh, passages of Scripture really, really anywhere. And John chapter 1 opens with obviously these famous words, In the beginning. Now, what is, what is that? That is, I mean, actually a small quotation, but that is a hyperlink, that is an echo, that is an illusion, that's a layer, and it's to what? Well, obviously it's to Genesis. So here's what we should, right away, when we open the Gospel of John and we read, in the beginning, in verse 1, and then again in verse 2, in the beginning, and then we get down to verse 5, and we see light and darkness. Right away, we should, be, we should be picking up something of, this is a retelling of the creation story. This is, John is, when John is trying to tell the story of Jesus, he starts with, this is God's creation, This is, and what I think we'll see here in a second, this is God's new creation. This is the new creation breaking into the world. Now, he doesn't just say in straightforward prose, this is the story of Jesus, the story of God's new creation breaking into the world. He doesn't do it that way because he he is, he's more nuanced and there's, there's better and more beautiful and deeper and richer and more meaningful ways to say Something like, this is God's new creation breaking the world. And a way to do that is to say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And then a few verses later say, and the light shone in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. And he's beginning to, to link us back to Genesis 1, and we can begin to hear those echoes of Genesis 1 ringing through our ears. So John, John 1 is... One of the, the ways to read part of it, because there's more going on there, is this is 
God's creation story. This is the new creation. And and what do you know? What do we get when we come down to verse 14? And that word that was in the beginning took on flesh and dwelt among us. We have a continued echo of the creation story of God's human, God's image bearer coming amongst us, living amongst us. This is the true image bearer. This is the true one who's come into the world. This is the new Adam, as, as Paul would put it. He's, he's saying the same thing, that there was the first Adam and the last Adam. In the first Adam came death, and the last Adam comes life for all. Paul is saying the same thing. John is making that same point or similar point, and he's just doing it in a different way. He's using a different echo, a different illusion, a different way to to get us there. And instead of just coming out and saying Jesus is like Adam, like Paul does in his letter uh, to the Romans, he just says, in the beginning, light and darkness. Now, what else do we see in the Genesis story? So if we were just to, to, to read the beginning of John, and we were just to read it through the lens of Genesis, because he has set the tone literally from the opening word, that this is a Genesis kind of story, that there's going to be, there's going to be echoes of Genesis coming, coming through here. What we would see is a few things, a few different uh, continued hyperlinks. One, a fun one, how many days in Genesis did God create? Well, six, and then the seventh day, God rested. John, in, in the first two chapters, not the full first two chapters, really through, through two, um, like 12 or 13, through the story of, of the wedding of Cana and Galilee, John does something interesting. He counts the days. So in verse 19, when the narrative starts, because verse 1 through 18 is the prologue, when John 1, 19, when the narrative starts, John begins to count the days. So John the Baptist shows up and says, this is the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. And he, when the, the scene changes, he says, and the next day. And something happens and he says, and the next day. So you have verse 19 is day one, and then you have and the next day, that's day two, and the next day, that's day three, and you have another and the next day, that's day four. And then when you get to the wedding of Cana, he goes, and on the third day, and that's day seven. So, and then that story ends with, this was the first sign of God manifesting his glory, of Jesus manifesting the glory of God. What is that? That is John, from John 1, through the wedding of Cana in Galilee, that is John weaving through this theme, this echo of God's new creation breaking into the world. And how does that new creation end in John's retelling? It ends with Jesus turning water into wine. And when we get to the end of John's gospel, what does, he, what does Jesus tell us to do? He, Jesus himself, when he's on the cross, he drinks the sour wine and commands us to drink the wine of his blood. And then when his side is pierced open, what comes forth from his side? Water and blood that we are supposed to, obviously not literally, but metaphorically drink out of because we too will be part of God's new creation. This is how we get, we, we become part of God's new creation 
that the the same Adam, again, if we wanted to continue with the, the Genesis metaphor, the same one who was placed in a garden and failed on a tree, now the second one is placed in a garden, and instead of eating the, eating the tree and being exiled, he is is in a sense, exiled upon the tree. He's killed upon the tree and brings life because when Jesus raises from the dead, where does he raise up? In the Gospel of John? In a garden. So you have these this Genesis motif woven all throughout there, all the way from in the beginning, light and darkness, humanity, Jesus as the image of God, seven days of creation, water to wine, all the way to the cross and new creation. And it's this whole theme of new creation. In that same one, you could go go into Jesus's baptism. In This is back in, in John 1. It says in, in John's gospel that when Jesus came up out of the waters, that the, the spirit descended upon him like a dove. And so here's a... a a great example of this is just a small detail. We need to have the recognition to say, well, where, if this is set in a Genesis echo, in a Genesis illusion, if he's painting with the color palette of Genesis, where does a dove come in in Genesis? Well, it comes in in the Noah story. And wouldn't you know it, when does the dove come in at the Noah story? It comes in obviously at the flood, when the whole world has been baptized underwater and the dove is sent out and when the dove doesn't come back because it finds something to rest upon, this is the sign that God's new creation has broken through. And so now, interestingly enough, in that story, in that story, in in Genesis, right, he brings back like a little olive branch, and so he, you know, he he knows that there's that there's land, and and here it's it's as if the dove goes back out and doesn't come back in Genesis, and now finally in John, the dove is landing, and this is the landing place of the dove in Genesis. It's landing upon Jesus because Jesus is God's new creation that even the flood story and the new creation that comes out of the flood, that that was just a sign pointing us to the real thing, which is Jesus who comes up out of the waters. He, and again, so here, this is the nuance. This is where, this is the fun part, honestly, of Bible study, is instead of just saying he's God's new creation, by giving us all of these scriptural hyperlinks and allusions and echoes and painting with these colors, the authors can do all these creative things. So it's not just that the world has gone under when the dove comes. It's that Jesus has gone under. Jesus has taken the violence and the sin upon of the world upon himself, and he himself has gone under the sea with them, under the waters with them, and risen out of those waters as God's new creation, in a sense, overcoming the flood, overcoming the sin, overcoming the wickedness, overcoming the death and destruction, obviously as a sign then of God's new creation and resurrection life. And so when Paul wants to talk about baptism in Romans 6, what does he, what does he do? He uses this, this very same analogy that we've been baptized and put underwater to death and we rise to newness of life with Jesus as his new creation, as as. Uh, resurrection life now has come upon us. So Paul uses this same language. Paul just does it in theological prose. 
John is doing the same thing through narrative by just saying that the Spirit was like a dove. He, he could have just said, and the Spirit came upon him, and the narrative would have continued. But once he adds the notation, it was like a dove, whatever that means, whether it was a physical dove or some, some spiritual manifestation of something that kind of looked like a dove, or whether it was just John trying to link us back to that. I don't know, and none of us do, but he's, he's writing it in there for a reason. He's saying that thing for a reason. So here in John 1, we just did John 1 through the wedding of, of Cana. We have a new Genesis, a new creation, seven days, the dove linking us to Noah's story. We also have in Genesis 1-2 that there was waters and, and the spirit was like a dove in the Hebrew. It's literally the spirit was fluttering like a dove over the face of the deep. So you have that, that imagery there. I think that's in it. You have the water to wine of Jesus taking the, you know, at, at the end and even in the story, right? It says that you save the best for last, right? That this, is, this is God's last work, his best work. Uh, and he takes the, the sour wine and gives us the wine of his blood to drink that we could partake of his new creation. And then there's this, there's this, if we continue again on the, the Genesis creation narrative, you also get these, these portions in John, and this is kind of sprinkled throughout the gospel, where Jesus says things like, my father has been working until now, and he's always been working, and, and now so am I. And Jesus then on the cross says, Father, I've completed the work you've given me. It is finished. So there's one sense in which you can read all of this as John trying to tell us this is God's new creation breaking into the world. There's also a way I think that you can read this that says this is actually the completion of God's original creation in the world. That, when, that Jesus, when Jesus is saying it is finished, what is the work that he's referring to? What if it's the work of Genesis 1, and that's what John is linking us all the way back to in, in his opening verse, in the beginning was the Word. That it's not just God making a new creation, that it's God actually finishing the creation that he started. And the reason John is linking us to Genesis is to say, this is the fulfillment of Genesis. This is actually the completion of Genesis. This isn't just the, the redoing of it or the new creation. This is the finishing of God's creation. And in, this, in the way that he meant to make an image, the image now has finally come and has come in Jesus Christ. So there's all these ways to do it. All that to say, all that Bible nerding out to just say this. We need the eyes um, and recognition to, to, to begin to see some of these things. Because the New Testament authors and the Old Testament authors, they do this, the Old Testament does this just in itself. Um, they do this all over the place. I mean, literally on every page, in every story, um, both Old and New Testament, there are echoes and allusions um, and hyperlinks, whatever metaphor there you want to use. And, um, and, and Bible study and reading comes alive when we begin to see some of these things. And so hopefully that is uh, instructive. I, I want to do some more of these specifically 
in the Old Testament and, and look at a couple of um, rules. I don't want to say rules. That's maybe a little too strict. A couple patterns that you see um, in the Old Testament specifically, and maybe we'll do a couple more new as well in, in the next episode um, to see how this how this is is continued to be uh, carried out because it, it they do it in all kinds of different ways, but there are a few that you know there are a few tricks of the trade that get used more than others, and so uh, I think it'd be fun to identify some of those and hopefully help you in your own reading. So, thank you so much for listening, and uh, I appreciate again you waiting uh, so long for uh, this episode. And uh, hopefully it won't be as long until the next one. If you uh, have any questions or feedback, good, bad, ugly uh, suggestion, you can shoot me an email. The, my email is in the uh, description below. There's also a link to leave me a digital uh, voicemail. And uh, you can leave me a message that way as well. And uh, if it's good feedback or a question, maybe I'll throw it in a future podcast. So thank you so much. Have a great day. And we'll see you next time.